Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We read in Scripture where it says that darkness covers the people and a gross darkness the people. But you are the light which shines into the world, and we pray that your light will be with us today. We pray that your angels would hold back any evil forces that would try to darken our minds and that we can see you clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in our quarterly, Loved and Loving John's Epistles. And the title for the lesson today is Walking in the Light, Renouncing Worldliness. And if somebody could read our memory text for us, which is 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is a text I think that's familiar to all of us, to not love the world or anything in the world. Uh, what do you think John means by the world? Worldly ways. Keep that in mind and be processing on that because this question is going to come back. It's a good question to start out with. Keep processing on it because it's going to come back up in one of the lessons, day's lessons as we go through the lessons. We're asked the question again about what does it mean, the world? And if somebody would then read the, the lesson for us, starting in uh, the first paragraph there in 1933, and read down all four paragraphs for us, please. In 1933, French author André Malraux published Man's Fate, a story about an ill-fated Marxist uprising in Shanghai, China, in the 1920s. In the story, a Marxist terrorist, Chen, is walking down the street with his first teacher, a Christian minister approaches him and starts a conversation about Chen's loss of faith. Little does the teacher know that Chen, at the moment, is carrying a bomb and is on his way to a political assassination. Chen replies that he hasn't lost his faith. He has simply put it in politics. That's all. What political faith, his former teacher asks with sadness, will destroy death? In other words, no matter your political ideas, no matter the utopia you hope to create, it will never defeat humanity's great scourge, death. What, while continuing to show us what it means to walk in the light, this week's text points us to the temporality of our world in contrast to the eternal life found only in God. And what are your thoughts about this, this opening story for our, for our lesson this week? As you read that, any thoughts, questions, things pop into your mind? I thought it was interesting about the concept of faith. Generally, when we say faith, we think it's faith in God, but you can have faith in a lot of different things. I think it's a good point to recognize. What is our faith in? What are we having confidence or, or trust in? And this particular person was, was in the political system. Is it true that the world we currently live in is temporary? Which is what the story is highlighting. Is that true? The world we currently live in? What is the benefit in realizing the world we live in is temporary? And what is the danger in forgetting it? The benefit is knowing there's something better. Okay, so the benefit of knowing something better would be hope, which would be important when we find ourselves in what kind of circumstances? Is anybody in the room ever experienced a discouraging time? <laughs> yes, a painful time, a difficult time. I mean, we can't go through this world without pain. And so recognizing that it's temporary, this world, doesn't that by definition mean whatever difficulty you find yourself in is also temporary? Is it sometimes if you've looked back on those times when you were in a difficult time in your life, did it feel like it would never end? Was it hard to keep the, the reality alive in your head that, hey, this too shall pass? Anybody remember those times? So remembering that this world we live in now is temporary does keep hope alive during those difficult times, doesn't it? That's a very important thing to remember. Conversely, if we forget that, 
forget, forget that this is not just temporary. That this maybe is all there is. I'm overwhelmed with sadness. Overwhelmed with sadness, discouragement, despair. What leads people to suicide? The most common thing that leads people to suicide is that they find themselves in a place where they're experiencing some type of pain, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, psychological, some type of pain in which they lose hope that the pain will be relieved. And so suicide becomes their escape from the pain. This is the most common reason. I don't believe I will ever be out of this suffering. And so one of the things we do with patients who are struggling with suicide is we always offer hope. Hey, I know you're in miserable pain right now. I know this is difficult. But hey, we can, we can help this. It's not going to stay this way. We've got something. It's going to get better. And see, where there's hope, people don't want to die. They want to escape the suffering. They want to escape the pain. So recognizing this truth, this world we live in is temporary. There's an eternal reality coming. Does this truth that this world is temporary help us with perspective on how we see the world? Yes. If it's, if it's temporary, then by definition that means something else is coming, right? Which then requires us to think, well, what's coming? What's coming? And does that open your mind up to all types of new possibilities? Yeah, so it changes our perspective on how we see the world, doesn't it? Conversely, if we forget that this world is temporary, we narrow our perspective. And we can get caught into the temporal What about the things we value? If we remember this world is temporary, does it impact what we value, what we relish, what we hold to, what we grasp for, what we cherish, what we build for, what we put our energies into, what we invest for? If we remember the world is temporary, does that change that whole dynamic? If we forget the world is temporary and think this is all there is, does it change that dynamic? This is quite a profound story here to open our minds to think in our lives today. Do we remember that this is temporary? I know the older I get, the gladder I am that this is temporary. I mean, when I look in the mirror, I'm glad this is not as good as God can do. Isn't that true, guys? Yes. I mean, I'm sure Eve and Adam had a much better physiology than we're struggling with. And I'm looking forward to that. No aches and pains and all those things we deal with. Isn't that true? No more reading glasses. That'd be nice. Yeah. When I discovered, it sounds kind of pessimistic, but I also think when I'm enjoying something really well that this too shall pass. It sounds negative, but from the perspective, you enjoy it so much more. If you know that even this joy that you're feeling right now, it will pass away, you know, temporarily. That you enjoy it more, and you grab onto you, and you just, you know, you just enjoy it. Are there some joys we can experience now that are eternal, that are not temporary, that can actually crescendo and get bigger and bigger and deeper and more meaningful with time? What what types of experiences or joys actually are not temporary can be eternal? Life, eternal life. Life eternal, which by definition, according to scripture is, this is life eternal. Knowing God. Knowing God is a joy, isn't it? Yes. And is that joy one that is temporary or is that an eternal joy? Eternal. Which can build over time, which then is, of course, life. Yeah, that's good. I like that. That's good. Okay. Um, what about this idea of being rescued from death, which is in, in the uh, question from the... From the lesson, it says, will the political faith 
destroy death, this idea of being rescued from death. And the question I have for that is, are there some things worse than death? So was our primary concern to be rescued from death? Oh, you see? Yes. Depends on your definition of death. Human definition of death or God's definition? Either one. Is there some things worse than the eternal death? Than eternal non-existence? Is there some things worse than eternal non-existence? Well, Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. Was he overstating it? Would you rather have slavery for eternity to a cruel tyrant taskmaster or would you rather have death? Would you rather live in a universe that was run by Satan? The wor- and, and if you think Satan's bad, you know, Adolf, if you think Adolf Hitler's bad, Adolf Hitler is charitable compared to Satan. Would you rather live in a universe like that or would you rather have death? Boy, I'm not hearing many answers. Okay. <laughs> you see? So, so is it primarily our concern that we're going to be rescued from death? Or is our primary concern to be rescued from evil, pain, suffering, sin? Isn't that true? Which stems from this distorted concept about God that broke that circle of love and trust. So, God does want to rescue us from both sin and death. True? Yes. Are there theories, though... About Now get this, get your mind around this. Remember, you're keeping in mind, there are some things worse than death, right? Which would be living in a totalitarian state, right? Are there some theories being promulgated through Christianity that the way God saves us from sin and death is by creating a totalitarian state where he is the great policeman in the sky? And if you're not sure... That's actually been preached in some churches within 10 miles of here in the last six months. That the reason we will have security in heaven is because in heaven God has angels with flaming swords. And he is the great policeman in the sky who once Christ has paid the price, he has the right to smack anybody out of existence without any more trial, without any more examination, with just if you step out of line, he'll whack you. That will be our universe in the future. Does that sound like a place you want to live? No. And so here we have these ideas of God saving us to a universe in which freedom is gone. Sunday's lesson. Somebody read 1 John 2.12, which is right at the top of the lesson. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, are forgiven you for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Let's start out first with the question, what does it mean, his name's sake? How have you heard it? Named after a parent in honor of a parent. So for his name's sake? His name is his character. And we're going to come to that. You're exactly right. Name is character. But how have you heard it? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. But your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Because of of what Jesus did, that's why our sins are forgiven. Jesus is in heaven pleading to his Father, My blood, my blood. For my name's sake, Father, forgive them. Have you ever heard that? Is that what this text means? No. So what does it mean? It was mentioned right here. Name in Hebrew culture connotes character. If, would it read it different to you if it said, your sins are forgiven you for his character's sake? 
How does that, does that sound different than his namesake to you? What, what would the different connotation be if you read it for his character's sake? Because of who he is. He is love and forgiveness. So we are forgiven because of who he is, and he is love and forgiveness. So his forgiving of us is revelation of his character. The top section there, it says, in 1 John 2.12, he tells us that all of our sins are forgiven. On what basis is that forgiveness found? What basis are all our sins forgiven? God's love. God forgives because God is loving. And that's the basis of our forgiveness. That's his, that's his position. Yes. That's his character. His character is to forgive, which is love. God is love. So love, character, we're, we're talking the same stuff here. You know, the, the way that we often read this text implies that we're, there's some manipulation to accomplish an end rather than the state of being what it is. In other words, he's saying, if I understand you right, Wendell, that God did something to achieve forgiveness rather than God being love and forgiveness. And, and I think that's, that's some of the questions I had, the basis of our forgiveness. Um, does God extend forgiveness freely from his heart, his personhood, the, the sovereign of the universe say, I forgive freely? Or did Christ have to do something in order to get God to be forgiving? No. Was the death of Christ necessary to get forgiveness into God's heart? Do you understand that's how it's often taught? That, that without the death of Christ, God was obstructed, impaired, blocked in some way, prohibited, prevented from forgiving. God could not forgive without the death of Christ. Have you heard that? John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he sent his son. Beautiful. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's 16. What's 17 say? He sent him into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Yes. So we find that, and God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. So we find that the Son is the vehicle through which God accomplishes his purpose in saving mankind. That's the way we should conceptualize that. Not the Son doing something to work on the Father, which is traditionally taught. Yes, Kathy. We have this idea that forgiveness is something, when we do something wrong, something occurs in God that changes God. But we have to understand that sin changes us. God is always in a state of moving towards us. That never changes. What changes is in us, and we become in a state of being afraid of God. The forgiveness has to occur in our mind. It never changes from God's perspective. The forgiveness is registered in our mind. When it says your sins are forgiven you, we have to know that in here. It's not something that has to occur in God. It was always there in God. From before our sin, for forever. What do y'all think about that? Well said. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Exactly right. Is it easier to be saved or easier to be lost? What do y'all think about that question? Is she, her question is, is it easier to be saved or easier to be lost? I would say it depends on who. Depends on who you're, who. 
Is it easier at this point in time where we find ourselves in history for the devil to be saved or the devil to be lost? For Satan to be saved or Satan to be lost? He can't be saved. He's beyond hope. He's seared his conscience beyond repair. He's lost eternally. He can't be saved. It's easier for him at this point in history for him to be lost. Are there people like that that have persisted in rebellious living so long that they've actually seared the conscience and destroyed their capacity for hearing and responding to the Holy Spirit? Have they done that? For those individuals, having gone walked that trail, where they are in their life, is it easier to be saved or lost? If you're talking about a person starting at de novo, just with the, uh, being born into the world, into a family where they have opportunity to hear the truth, is it easier to be saved or lost? Saved. So it really depends on, on who we're talking about. We, uh, that question, can we apply it broadly to everyone? Well, when I think of that question, I, it's difficult to walk Christian life in the world today, living in the world that we live in. It's very difficult. And looking at it from the perspective that all we have to do is make a choice to accept Christ, we're saved. That's clear. But yet, day-to-day life, it's very difficult to walk the Christian walk. It's hard. We are more bombarded with sin, exposed to sin every day, than we are to the Christian way. So it's difficult to make. It is true that this is difficult to time. And the Bible says at the end of time, the devil shall go to and fro like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But it also says at the end of time, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in his rays. So at the same time, the latter rain will be poured out. So at the same time the devil is crescendoing his attacks, we have the Holy Spirit and the sun rising to pour out their agencies to heal and restore. And so at this point in human history, we have more truth available to us in the great controversy between Christ and Satan than any generation in human history. We have greater opportunity to understand these, these uh, momentous events of, of human history and be set free from it. So I think it's true that this is a difficult time we live, but it's also true we have great advantages that, time, that people in times past may not have had. That's true, but when you're speaking to young people, I've had kids ask me this question. It's so much easier to be lost than to be saved. It's so hard to walk. And I would tell you that's because that hasn't been presented to them in the right light yet. You present it in the right light, it is not hard. It is not hard. Yes? We're making it more difficult to be saved because we think to be saved is to live a sinless life. And we believe that and we're preaching that. That's why, that's why it becomes hard. But when we believe Christ saves us, we save. What does it mean to be saved? Cooperating with the healing remedy. Lots of things mumbling around the room, aren't there? Maybe that's why it's so hard. Yeah. Did anybody say forgiveness? To be forgiven, you're saved. Yes, and uh, and the lesson, that's what we're going to get to, so let's just segue right into it. The lesson in uh, the next paragraph says, John wants his hearers, that is, faithful church members, to have absolute assurance of their salvation. That's the question we're talking about, isn't it? He is referring back to his discussion of the topic of sin found in 1 John 1, 9. Uh, stressing that to be a Christian means to have this forgiveness. Christians do not deny their sinfulness, but have accepted salvation through Jesus Christ and therefore live with the assurance of being forgiven. Now, do you notice that the lesson is equating salvation with forgiveness? Am I, am I stretching that or am I reading that correctly? Is that enough? Is that salvation? Is having your sins forgiven salvation? No. 
Okay? So we have an, an English professor over here who rightly wants to parse the English language. <laughs> For me, forgiveness means, you've expressed this so well, it's a healing process. It's not a legal act. So if forgiveness is a healing and a giving of the new heart, that's something that it take, continues to take place. Okay, okay. You see, and that's exactly what forgiveness can mean. Forgiveness can mean two things. And the way we hear it in our modern Western society is when somebody has offended you, the person who's been offended, can extend forgiveness from their heart. But then the other person must repent in order for reconciliation to happen. Isn't that true? If you forgive somebody who's offended you, but they're still out to get you, has there been reconciliation? No. No. If the person who's done you wrong has truly repented, but you're mad and you want to make them pay, is there reconciliation? No. No. It takes both. So we, we in our Western thinking, almost always, by default, think of it in those broken down terms. Isn't that true? But biblically, and what what's, uh, Rachel said over here, is that oftentimes forgiveness is used to encapsulate the entire process of reconciliation. So forgiveness can be used to say, we're reconciled or reunited with God, which includes our repentance and regeneration. We don't usually hear it that way. Now, let's break it down into the two, two ways of hearing forgiveness. The first way, it's just being extended from the person who's been offended. Could God forgive by extending, being forgiven, being a forgiving God, without the death of Christ? Yes. Yes. God is forgiving. That's why Christ came. Could we be reconciled, restored, regenerated, recreated without the death of Christ? No. No. And this is where some of the texts talk about it's through Christ that we experience forgiveness or without the, without the, uh, you know, the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin and all this type of stuff because we could not be restored without what Christ accomplished at the cross, but God still is forgiving. Now, evidence is for this. Those who put Christ on the cross. There you go. He's, he's, he's quoting Christ on the cross, and God the Son on the cross is saying what? Father, forgive. forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, did Jesus, God the Son, have the authority to forgive sins? Yes. yes. You all remember the story. So you might know that the man, Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. So God the Son has forgiven these people. They're forgiven. Does that mean they're saved? No. No. Why not? Because what was said by Kathy over here, their hearts, it did not register in their consciousness, in their identity, in their hearts. It did not soften them. It did not lead them to repentance. As it says in Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It is seeing his goodness, his love, his grace for us, that our hearts are broken, and then we open the heart to him. His forgiveness comes first. Our repentance comes second. Isn't that true? Prodigal son is an illustration of that. Prodigal son is an illustration of that, he says. Yes. So the lesson suggests that we look at a couple other texts here. Um, Let's look at a couple of those. One is Acts 5.31. It says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Did you hear that? He's exalted for what purpose? To give repentance and forgiveness. Does it say he's exalted to the right hand in heaven so that he can pay our legal penalty so that we can have pardon stamped by our name in the record books of heaven? Did it say that? 
Did it say he was exalted to the right hand of the Father so he can plead to the Father to be gracious and loving and kind to us? No. That he is giving us, giving us repentance and forgiveness. And then it says Colossians 1, 13 to 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How do you hear that text? What is the dominion of darkness? He's rescuing us from the dominion of darkness. Define it. What is it? The lies about God. Lies about God and? What did the lies about God result in? Okay. A darkened mind, fear and selfishness, self-centeredness in our hearts, right? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Was there a need to be afraid of God? No. Was God now their enemy? No. Was he out to get them? No. And notice the conversation at Eden. when God. And notice how gracious God is. Do you think God knew where Adam was hiding? Yes. Adam, where are you? He could have just popped up behind the bush. Think how frightened Adam would have been. Startled him maybe half to death, right? But God didn't do that. Adam, where are you? And he goes, I I ran and hid because I was naked and afraid, or afraid and naked, and afraid because I was naked. And now notice what God says to him. This is really cool. Adam, who told you you're naked? Now think this through. What are the options here? God's in the garden with Adam. How many people are there to tell him this? Even the serpent. Okay. Who told you you are, are naked? Not a lot of options here. And, and, and what's the implication, though, Adam? You didn't hear it from me. I'm not the one saying you're naked. I'm not the one pointing out any defects. I'm not the one critical. I'm not criticizing. I'm not against you, Adam. Isn't that the implication? Adam, that's your own conscience. That's your own fear and insecurity that's, that's, that's causing you to feel so bad. That's not me, Adam. I'm your friend. I'm here to save you. We see this again in the story in the New Testament, the woman caught in adultery. And after Jesus dispatches the crowd, what does he say to her? Where are your accusers? Now, think it through. What's implied in the question? Hey, I'm not accusing you. Hey, I know where you've been. I know where they just drug you out of. And you don't hear me criticizing you. And just so we don't know, don't, don't miss it this time, Jesus actually says to her, neither do I condemn you. Uh, Romans 8. Oh, Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up. Condemn us. Yeah. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? No, he is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. Yeah, who is it that condemns? Not Christ Jesus? No. God is not against us. So we see this reality that this fear is part of the the infection of our being because of the broken trust, because of the lies. And so this fear drives us to run from God, to think bad things about him when he has been our friend the whole time. Parents, how many of your children have ever disobeyed you? (laughs) And did they really ever need to be afraid of you wanting to do them in? Really? Did they need to be afraid that you're coming with a flamethrower to torch them? They never did. Now, it's true you might have disciplined, but what is the purpose of discipline? Is it always to heal them, to save them, to protect them, to restore them? Isn't that true? Your heart is always for their good. Isn't that true? Even when they're being bad, you're still for their good. Isn't that right? 
But yet, how do the kids often act when they know they've done something wrong before you've caught up to them? Aren't they running from you? Aren't they afraid? Do they need to be afraid of you guys? No, where's that coming from? Their own consciences, their own self-condemnation, because they know they're wrong. And then let's look at Colossians. It's even more interesting. Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. We're going to go through 8 through 15. Still dealing with this idea of forgiveness. It says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now let's stop right there and just, just, just break this down. Think this through. Don't be taken captive by human philosophy, deceptive philosophy, based on human tradition and the principles of this world. What are the principles of this world? Okay. The principles of the world, it's about me, isn't it? My rights have been violated. Self-centeredness. Survival of the fittest. I have a right. You've done me wrong. Justice must be served. You will pay the right price. Isn't that the principles of the world? After 911, what did George Bush say? Didn't he say something about justice? They will be brought to justice. What does justice mean to the world? We're going to kill them. Retribution. Revenge. They're going to pay. We're going to, we're going to make sure they get theirs. This is the principles of the world. Don't be taken captive by this philosophy, which says Christ died to pay the wrath to pay the legal penalty, to assuage the wrath of the Father. The Father was required to inflict penalties. The Father will execute those who don't come back to him. The pagan philosophies of the world. Don't be taken captive by that. Think it through. And this is what predominates most of Christian thought. This philosophy of the world. Now go on to verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. How much of the deity? So who do we learn about in Christ? Yes, the entire deity, Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's pull another text to support that. We don't want one text in isolation. Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Who's the Counselor? The Holy Spirit. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father. A mighty God, Prince of Peace. Do you notice in the Son, the fullness, the Father, Son, and Spirit all dwell in the Son? Do we learn of the Godhead when we see the... Or do we learn of Jesus, who's loving, kind, gracious, forgiving, who's now there to protect us from the Father, who's wrathful, stern, and just? That's the deceptive philosophy of the world, that distorted image. Paul's saying, don't get caught into that. That's paganism. See it for what it is. The fullness of the, of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You have been made full. Now notice this, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. What's this talking about? Changing of the heart. Changing of the heart. Changing the heart from what to what? Stone to flesh, metaphorically. Enmity towards God and love. Enmity towards God, towards love, towards God. Any other ways? How has the heart changed? Selfishness to self. Selfishness to selflessness. Me first to others first. Yeah. A real transformation. 
That's what it's talking about. Something's happening with it. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations, nailing it to the cross. And then, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. What do you think that means? How did the cross disarm? Well, first off, who are the powers and authorities that got disarmed? Satan. Satan and his evil host got disarmed by Christ at the cross. How so? How so? Revealing lies. What are Satan's weapons? For though we live in the world, we do not wage war like the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly weapons. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now get what we demolish. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Satan is the father of lies. He lies about God. So at the cross, Christ first disarmed him by revealing ultimate truth about God. Because the fullness of the deity... Father, Son, and Spirit all dwelt in Christ. We are learning about God. By the way, this is why those who take the legal view of things, uh, we just have to have a blood payment of an innocent life, someone who's sinless, who's to die for us and all this kind of stuff. You know, they ask, well, why could an angel come and live a sinless life and die for us and pay the legal debt? If an angel came, who would we learn about? And what would we learn about God if an angel came? Nothing. Oh, we would. Did you hear that? We're will, he's willing to sacrifice his creatures to protect himself. That's what we learn about God. That he's selfish and he exploits his creatures in his own interest. What do we learn about God? That he came himself. Yeah. That he would put himself in harm's way for us. Yeah. We learn incredible things about God. Is that why Christ died? Part of the reason... Part of the reason is absolutely why he died to reveal that. What Have you ever heard the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Who has absolute power in the universe? And did Satan allege that God was corrupted by that? Yes, he did. Well, at the cross, was Jesus helpless like the two thieves? No. Powerless? No. If you read in John 13, all power had been given to him. And he got up and washed his disciples' feet, remember? With all power. But he has all power. He's not like those helpless thieves. Remember the the show, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched? Jeannie would blink her eyes and make things happen. Bewitched would twinkle her nose and make things happen. Jesus didn't have to do that. He only had to think it. Be gone. And they'd have been wiped out. What does it tell you about him that in the face of this abuse, this torture, this, this absolute reviling behavior toward him, that there's not even a thought to do them harm? This is why you read after the cross in Revelation when he ascends, what do you hear the, the hosts of heaven saying? Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power because he's demonstrated he's the only one in the universe trustworthy with it. You should be glad I don't have it. And I'm glad you don't have it. Isn't that true, guys? Yes. yes. I read in the book, it said that he wasn't 
held on the cross by the nails, he was held there by his love. Yes, he wasn't held on the cross by the nails. He was held by his love. He said, no one can take my life. I give it freely. Absolutely right. So we learn truth about God that disarms Satan. He has allegations. You can't. God, God's a power monger. He'll get you. Well, can that lie hold up when we look at Christ at the cross? No, that's disarmed. And there's a whole host of lies that were disarmed at the cross. Lots of them. But what else did Christ do at the cross? How else did he disarm him? What other weapon did Satan have active on planet Earth besides lies? The power of death. The power of death, it says in Hebrews 2.14, that Christ took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then in 2 Timothy 1.10, it says that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. So not only did he destroy the lies that separate us from God, but he actually destroyed death, which is one of Satan's weapons. He disarmed him. Who holds the keys to the grave now? Christ. Christ. Satan was disarmed. All his weapons are gone. How did Christ destroy death? His resurrection was evidence of death's destruction. But how did he destroy death? By living a life of perfect, unadulterated love and restoring that back in humanity so that he could give that to us. Because once love is perfectly restored in us, then we're restored back to life. What do you all think about that? What is the basis of life? And there's different ways to say it. Some will say unity with God, knowing God. That's true, absolutely. Why? Because God is love. love. And when God creates, does he create out of harmony with himself or only in harmony with himself? So all nature, all the universe is created to operate on what template? Love. It's the design schematic, if you will. Life is only possible in harmony with the principle of other-centered love. And we've gone through this before, so I'm not going to go through it again. But in 1 John, it says, sin is lawlessness, meaning outside of love. Christ perfectly restored the principles of life. And this we read in, in Psalms, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord, the law of love is life. And he perfectly restored it in by his self-sacrificing death. Thus the grave couldn't hold him. He defeated it by refusing to act in self-interest and giving his life freely in love. Living that perfect life. So anyway, we can talk about that later. we got more stuff to cover in the lesson. You see where he disarms him though? Isn't this kind of cool? Okay. See, doesn't the scripture tell us now that the only weapons that Satan have are defensive weapons? Well, yes. It's, the gates of hell cannot prevail against. The gates of hell cannot prevail. Satan is on the defensive. He took this world with deceit and lies. And now he's trying to hold this world, the minds of people, with lies and deceit. That's right. Let's skip to Wednesday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph while verse 15. Well, verse 15 is quite a broad warning against loving the world. Verse 16 now spells out some detail. What does it mean to love the world? John mentions three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. John says that these three things are not of the Father, but of the world. Yet our flesh, our eyes, and our life all come from God. What then is the problem? What is John warning us against? Thoughts. The lust of, the desire of, 
those things, not the actual physical reality of them. You everybody heard that? Did God create us in the condition we are in now? Recognize that. This is not how God created us. Did he create us infected with sin? Did he create us lustful, prideful, greedy, arrogant, boastful? Did he create us that way? No. No. Is John warning us against God's design for humanity? No. 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 He is warning us against the infaction which is destroying God's humanity. Does that make sense to everyone? Which we've already defined in here today is selfishness, fear and selfishness. Okay, also known in the world today as survival of the fittest. That principle of watching out for number one at the expense of other people. Now, I had a, uh, a listener who listens to us in Texas email me this week because he participates in an online uh, Bible forum. And somebody posted something he wanted me to comment on. And I thought, well, it fits with our lesson. I'll just, I'll just read this posting. And there's some good stuff in here. And then there's some stuff that requires us to be thoughtful. It says, as we observed so often, understanding sin is absolutely essential if we are to see the truth of the atonement. Seeing God as imposing a penalty for sin inevitably places him in the wrong light. If, however, sin has its own consequence, a natural penalty, then God is experiencing that in Jesus on the cross. The reason why there's so much confusion and debate over how God makes us right is that we fail to understand what went wrong in the first place. Ideas of payment and propitiation assume that God imposed a penalty on sin. Ideas of substitution assume that God demands a death before he can forgive sin. Ideas of infusion of some spiritual substance assumes that sin is an actual object that can be dealt with, or that sin is some metaphysical dirt that must be mechanically washed away. All these concepts are wrong because they see sin wrongly. Sin is not some object, not dirt, not a, nor a pathogen, not a disease agent, or whatever. Sin cannot be weighed by the pound or physically observed. Sin is, not, is a broken relationship. That's the key. Only as we accept this understanding can such confusion be cleared up, since the answer to a broken relationship is a restored relationship. We may think that to call sin a disease is helpful, but... Even here, we can be mistaken because then we think that we need that what needs to happen is to provide some kind of antidote or antivirus, whatever. No, sin is only a disease metaphorically. You can't see it under a microscope. What are your thoughts about that? This requires you to think. This is why the person emailed me because they were struggling with this. Because there's a lot of good stuff in there, wasn't there? Especially in the beginning. Wasn't that stuff really good in the beginning? You know, what do you think about this idea, though? Yes. Are we already born with this, though? Yes. How is... How are you out of relationship? You know, you don't even have a relationship yet, but you're already out of a relationship. That's what comes to mind. What do you think about the criticism of the disease idea? Seeing sin as a disease. You think that's, that's legitimate? Because, or do you think we should, maybe he's a little bit off here. Well, didn't he say we, the problem with calling it a disease, and that implies that we need an antidote? And we do have to have something, call it whatever you want. We have to have something that we don't have. Do you notice how the writer here equates disease with something molecular? Something physical, something that you can physically touch, measure, weigh, or look at under a microscope. That's what he defines as a disease, which he is correct, sin is not. And thus he set up a straw man to shoot down. How many of you have a computer? Anybody heard of computer viruses? Can you weigh those? 
Can you measure those on, uh, you know, a, a, an instrument of some kind? Can you see them under a microscope? No. Are they infections? Do they destroy? Yes. See, our minds are what are infected here with distorted thinking, what you might want to call spiritual virus, which are lies about God which alter the base programming that we were designed to operate upon. We don't operate naturally on other-centered love. We operate on fear and selfishness. Our wiring has gotten off. Furthermore, based on what you think, your brain wiring actually changes. Your neural circuits actually change based on the God you worship. The question was, how do we come out of the womb that way? If that is a more of an environmentally induced change... Oh, it's not an environmentally-induced change other than to Adam and Eve. Because God made us incredibly fascinating. I mean, it's just incredible the way God made us. He made us like God. Whose image? God's image. God creates beings in whose image? When he creates, he creates beings in his image. When Adam and Eve were given the ability to have children, whose image would their children be in? Their image. And so when Adam and Eve changed themselves, guess what? And if you all don't know that, look, we have studies now that show that it's not just the genes you have, it's how the genes you have are being expressed. And the behaviors you engage alter not the genes you have, but how the genes you have are turned on and turned off. Thus, if you take one hit of cocaine, one hit of cocaine, you will alter gene expression in the neurons of your brain, turning on a gene that produces a protein called cocaine amphetamine reactive transcript, which was not being produced before. And this particular protein increases the craving for cocaine from one hit. Turns on a gene. Now, if you participate in this, before you have children, you will pass on your gene expression to your children, making your children more vulnerable to addictions. This is how we're made. So why are we in this condition? Because Adam and Eve actually changed themselves, changed their cells psychologically, spiritually, if you will, their mindset, but that had a direct reaction upon their physiology. Yes? I'll give you other examples. You guys believe lies. And I remember two weeks ago, week two ago, we talked about the, the examples of the patients who believe false things and they had physical illnesses from those. You've heard all about that. But if you believe lies, um, let's say you believe um, uh, you got word that one of your children got killed in a car accident. And it's not true. It was a, it was, it was a false report. But you can't verify that for three days. What will those three days be like for you? Will you be suffering? Do you think your anxiety stress centers will be firing? Now, we know when that happens, your body starts releasing, it activates in your brain something called the amygdala, which causes the, uh, the sympathetic nervous system to fire, which causes your adrenal glands to release all types of glucocorticoids and catecholamines, which then result in activation of inflammatory factors called cytokines, which all these things were back, back upon the brain, which will alter, if you keep this up, gene expression, suppressing genes that produce proteins that keep your brain healthy. All this based on what? A lie. Gene expression change based on a lie. Yes, this is real. This is how God made us. We're incredible. And this is what God is trying to bring us back to. Because we now know that when you worship a God of love, the love centers of your brain, called the anterior cortex, where you experience altruism, compassion, other-centeredness, directly calm the fear centers, turn those fear centers off, suppressing all those stress hormones. And we've done studies on this, that people who have this type of activation of the anterior cortex have lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower stress hormone levels. They actually have better health. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. 
physiological change based on what we think. Yes, this is real. And so we are born with an infection of fear and selfishness that drives those fear circuits constantly. And we're constantly then doing things to protect self, which only results in more conviction of our conscience because we're taking advantage of the people, which only spirals us downward further, which causes us to lie to ourselves and create you know, delusions. That, what does it say? The human mind is deceitful above all things and utterly wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17. This is what happens. This is why Christ came to the light in our minds with the truth, because you know the truth and the truth will set you free. So you're living in this agony, this torment, you're stressed, and then the truth comes that your child's safe. Does the truth set you free? Yes. <laughs> well, ultimately, we get new physiology when Christ comes. Yes. But the, the repercussions of having that emotional stress for those three days, is that still affecting? Even after you're free, you still feel better, but has that had an effect? Yeah, that's a great question. How, we, haven't, we haven't been able to measure. Long-term stress will have consequences that w- even though we can be freed of it, so we're going to have a healthier life from that point forward, we're starting at a lower point than if we had never had that stress in the first place. So, you know, if you imagine the stress is wearing you out, exhausting you, physically straining you, neurons are losing, being lost, all this kind of stuff, and then you turn your life in the right direction and you get healthy, you'll start getting healthier and your brain will start healing, you'll start going up the right trail, neurons will reproduce, neural connections will expand, we can have all this stuff. But will you be in the same position if you'd always just been growing healthy in the first place? I, I, you know, and how long does it take? These things that I've spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Yes, that your joy might be full. And I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly when now Now. so there's a lot of things about this and i think that that we are actually cognitively infected that our thinking processes are infected with lies and distortions about god and we are very self-referenced and we need a change in the way we think and that we need an infusion that comes from christ via the holy spirit of other centered love that we cannot produce in ourselves so do we have to establish good habits for a month, I was around people that had good habits, and it was easy for me to have good habits. But when I get back home, the bad habits kick back in. How do you keep the good habits there? The longer you practice a behavior, the more um, entrenched the neural circuits become, and the easier it is to continue them without purposeful effort. The, 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 it depends on what behaviors we're talking about. How many of you can drive a standard shift vehicle? A stick shift. Okay, most of us can. Did it come naturally or did you have to practice at that? Now, can you do it without thinking? Yes. How about you go to England and try to drive over there? You have to shift with your left hand. Will it come natural? No. Will it be very awkward? Will you have to purposely work at it? Now, if you working at it for a while, um, eventually will you be able to learn it with your left hand? And then after, say, six months of doing that, some kid runs out and you've got to gear down really fast. Won't you still be grabbing the right door handle? Because you've, for 30 years, driven the other way. And even though you've learned the other one, the previous way of doing it has not been degraded. 
This is what sometimes happens. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7, that the good that I want to do, that I don't find myself doing. Sometimes I find myself doing this other stuff that I didn't intend to do. What does that mean? Well, that's evidences of old habit patterns that are not yet fully removed, but through God's grace soon will be. And so it's a daily growth and rewiring of the neural circuits as we continue to activate the healthy paths and leave the unhealthy paths dormant. The brain actually degrades them slowly over time. They do get degraded. Yes? why it's so hard to grasp some of these things you say in class because for 50 years we've called the other and all of a sudden you throw this stuff out and it's like, I don't know. Has anybody experienced that? Wendell. And i I got one more big point to make before class closes. we got to move on. There's a quotation I'd like to read. Go ahead. We were assigned testimonies volume 2, a couple pages. With a few pages before that, there's this statement. Unless the mind is educated to dwell upon religious themes, it will be weak and feeble in this direction. But while dwelling upon worldly enterprises, it will be strong, for in the direction it has been cultivated, has strengthened with exercise. The reason it's so difficult for men and women to live religious lives is because they do not exercise the mind unto godliness. It is trained to run in an opposite direction. Unless the mind is constantly exercised, in obtaining spiritual knowledge and seeking to understand the mystery of godliness, it is incapable of appreciating eternal things because it has no experience in that direction. This is the reason why nearly all consider it uphill business to serve the Lord. What's the page on that? Uh, volume 2, page 189. Okay, and so I'm going to have to skip my last point, check my notes. Because I've got to follow up what he said now, because I know you guys want to know this. Um, in our brains, the brain produces various proteins called neurotrophic factors, which mean they're like fertilizer for your neurons. When your neurons get them, they'll grow strong, they'll grow healthy, they'll connect, the brain makes new neurons, neural circuits will expand. Um, but this neurotrophic factors like BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, do not come off the DNA as that particular neurotrophic factor. It comes off as a precursor protein called pro-BDNF. And pro-BDNF is weed killer to your neurons. If it hits a neuron and acts on a dendrite, it will kill it. Whereas the BDNF itself will make it grow stronger. What determines whether you get the, the weed killer or the fertilizer to your neural circuit is the activity of the neural circuit itself. If the neural circuit is being used, it produces an enzyme that will cleave pro-BDNF into BDNF, and that circuit will continue to grow stronger. If the circuit is dormant, it will not produce the enzyme, and so the pro-BDNF coming off the DNA will start pruning back that circuit. So when you were in high school and you took Spanish classes and you were by brute force memory making yourself memorize words, you're forcing electrical energy down new budding connections. If you practice this every day, you're now producing this enzyme. Pro-BDNF is being cleaved into BDNF, so you're now recruiting new neurons. You're expanding more rapidly the connections, and your language ability expands. If you continue practicing this, you not only get vocabulary, you get enunciation and syntax. You do this for two years, and you've really got a nice little circuitry going there, and then you graduate, and 20 years goes by, and you haven't spoken that language and the church mission trip is coming up, and your spouse says, oh, my spouse took Spanish, and I go, shop, shop, shop. Why is that happening? Because what happened to that circuit over 20 years? Pro-BDNF has pruned that thing back. It hasn't been used. Your brain says, let's get rid of it. This happens. And so the quote that was just read is absolutely neurophysiologically right. If you want the healthy circuits of your brain to grow strong, and this is what we've discovered now with the imaging scans, that if you meditate on a God of love, 
15 minutes a day, meditation on a God of love. Of course, the same author that you read said we should spend a contemplative hour each day on the life of Christ. But if you spend just 15 minutes a day for four weeks, we can see measurable changes, growth in the anterior zenith cortex. With measurable improvements in memory, cognition, lower blood pressure, heart rate, and stress hormone levels because the anterior zenith cortex calms the fear centers. This is what happens. Mary Hart doeth good like a medicine. If you want the brain to go stronger, if you want to walk in grace and have that developing Christ-like character, it is a choice that we have to participate in. We have the power to, of which neural circuits we fire. Turn off the news. Yes. Yeah. Now, the news probably isn't generally that helpful, but see, people can go to church, and, and I'm going to tell you, it goes to God concepts. If you worship a God who's authoritarian, punitive, distant, critical, anterior cortex does not grow stronger. It grows weaker, and the fear centers grow stronger. And we become less and less like Christ. We become more and more like those religious people who would kill him on the cross. Neural circuits change based on the God you worship. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much of the incredible being that you are. How loving, how free you've given us. And the way you've made us in your image. Lord, the the truth is shining into our minds. May we comprehend it and apply it. May your Holy Spirit continue to lead us. May our neural circuits grow strong in love and weak in fear. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.